Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy, live, online and podcast. Uh, first of all, a big thank you to our fishy friends from Radio Marinara for the last hour of aquatic awesomeness, uh, and I look forward very much to having your company for the next hour here on 3RRR 102.7. In the studio, fresh from a super healthy hiking holiday... Up in sunny Scotland, I think, it's our resident psychologist, guru on all matters of mind, body and soul, Rainbow Doc. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back. It's lovely to be back here, I think, and happy Mental Health Week. Oh, okay, thank you. Is it just starting? Just finishing it started week? yesterday. Excellent. Yeah, mm-hmm. Happy or not so happy Mental Health Week. Thank you. And sitting next to Rainbow, as imposing of intellect as she is, gentle in nature. We have our psychotherapist, Prudence, dear. Lovely to see you again, Prudence. Good morning. And yes, look, I'm here. It's 10 o'clock. Yep. I made it. You did Just very in case well. you need to check your clocks. Yeah, you didn't go mm. by the, the oven clock then. No, that's right. That one, oh, that's two hours behind or something. <laughs> Three days. Um, and like the cat who got the cream licking her whiskers in the corner, we have our resident medical student, Miss Diagnosis. Why are you looking so contentedly feline this morning? 
I, I think it's because my honorific is due to be changed shortly. I had my final medical exams on Friday. Yay! Which is very, very exciting. So I am just thrilled to be here with no study to do. Just sit back, relax and enjoy the show. So how will we describe you thereafter? Uh, it's it's going to be doctor diagnosis as opposed to misdiagnosis. <laughs> uh, but let's wait until the exam results come in, shall we? Yeah, reassuring. It shows an alarming degree of confidence, but uh, not one that Misplaced. I share after over <laughs> 40 years in the business. But there we are. And, of course, not forgetting the most important man in the room, the man who makes it all happen behind the scenes, panel beater on the knobs and buttons. Thanks for being with us, panel beater and we've got some great stuff coming your way today um, fresh from the Scottish Highlands Rainbow will be talking <laughs> us- <laughs> it's like I parachuted in <laughs> yeah, she'll be talking about the concept of green health um, Prudence will be taking us through um, breast cancer and breast cancer screening and misdiagnosis uh, she'll be talking about exams exam stress how to help yourself or indeed help your kids deal with the exams but first before we do all that let's have some news Uh, you're here with me, Dr. Nick. We've got Rainbow Doc Prudence, dear, and misdiagnosis in the studio. Tell us what's in the news. Oh, what's in the news? <laughs> oh, well, I guess what caught our eye was actually um, uh, the, the report in Associated Press and the, a bit of a hoo-ha around Sam Smith um, declaring their, their pronouns. <clears throat> and um, in wonderful style, I suppose, of some mainstream media, they managed to get it completely wrong. And uh, what way did they get it completely wrong? Well, as I said, you know, Sam has made it quite clear that their pronouns are they, them, so they're using neutral pronouns. And um, the actual report, if you saw it, um, did he all the way through? Yeah, I heard a report, I heard on the radio actually someone talking about this and talking about the, the they pronoun being um, included in the... Uh, latest Macquarie Dictionary. Webster Dictionary. Well, thank you. Thank you. So can I... Webster Dictionary. And and then, talking about this, the person who was talking about it then misgendered Sam. There was a flood of phone calls and uh, this person corrected themselves, which is what one does. So playing devil's advocate here and at risk of having a microphone (laughs) thrown at me, um, there'll be people listening who say, so what's happening here? Sam Smith is a bloke, why on earth are we suddenly calling him they or their? Well, Sam Smith is who Sam Smith believes and, you know, who Sam Smith is. Uh, It's not for us to say who Sam Smith is. So they pronouns means that a person is identifies as non-binary, so they identify as outside the binary of male and female. And mm. something which we just need to get well, used to. Yeah, look, yeah. gender's far more complicated, really, than, than that simple, you know, two types of things. And I think, you know, it, it's not actually that difficult to accommodate, you know, a whole range of um, ways of expressing ourselves. And you know, we live in a world that is actually, you know, a little bit complicated. So the fact that you might have to choose between three sets of pronouns as opposed to two, I don't think is a great demand on anyone to do that. There are, you know, I, I do hear, I have these discussions too often, but I hear so many arguments. It's too difficult to remember somebody's pronouns. And that's a bit like what you can't make the, you know, you've got a choice of two and now you've got a choice of three and that is going to be too difficult. I went to the cafe just now to get a coffee and I 
I could have had cow milk. I could have had soy milk. And now they're offering almond as well. It's like, oh, my no, goodness, no. what am I going to do? I can't cope with the choice of three things. Oat milk for? Oh, no, that's it. I can't have coffee anymore. I, I think the thing that always astounds me with this is we grow up in a world where the names for things change all the time anyway. You know, I grew up with without Southern Cross Station. It was you know diff- a different name. I grew up with Snoop Dogg being Snoop Dogg, and now he's Snoop Lion, and no one cares. You know, I don't understand why it's so hard for people to change. get their names. And around. language evolves. I mean, any arguments that oh, you know, this is against the sort of you know the the, the rules of the language, I think, uh, is, a, is a is a pretty lame argument. I mean, if you're going to speak Latin all the time, okay, I'll probably go with you on that <laughs> one. But you know, our language does evolve through usage. It reminds me of the the, the when Ms came out and, uh, and people were writing letters and holding demonstrations because how on earth could we possibly manage this clumsy title MS and of course uh, now it's it means nothing popular, isn't it, well, well, it, now it. there's no second thought about yeah. it, it's just another honorific that we use so, so thank you for that, I think it's, uh, it needs to be said that this is, uh, this is part of how things are evolving so lovely <laughs> I'm wearing my badge <laughs> Um, Miss Diagnosis, you found something in the news that we need to know about. I did. Well, I, I both found something in the news and also shamefully wasn't able to answer an exam question on this topic. So as the diligent student that I no longer am, I went and looked it up actually when I got home from the exam. So you researched your exam topic after you had failed to answer it? Well, I, I guess the thing about um, these medical exams is, is we sit them so we can have the knowledge to help other people, not just so we can write them on a piece of paper. So I actually thought it would kind of be good if I knew about it. And that topic is measles. Um, so essentially what uh, we had this exam question on measles and it was, you know, outlined sort of signs and symptoms and um, incubation periods and all sorts of things. And I went and sort of thought, why are they asking us about measles? This is an illness that, you know, I think we've got so much herd immunity to and we haven't had that many outbreaks recently. And I was wrong. Uh, we have had quite a few outbreaks recently. And I think the thing that I was most interested in is that there has been uh, quite a large outbreak in New Zealand And the reason why this is so important is they've had over sort of 1,400 cases, I believe, reported in New Zealand recently. And the difficulty with this is measles is an incredibly contagious disease. And it's travellers returning from New Zealand to Australia, even just through the airports that are bringing this disease in, because it is incredibly contagious. It's an airborne viral particle, which I didn't know in my exam, and I apologise to the paediatrician who is marking that exam, um, but I do know now. Um, And... It can be deadly to kids and there are, you know, we have seen trends in lower rates of um, immunisations in children in Australia and I think I just wanted to sort of take this time to just re-alert our listeners to the fact that measles is a potentially deadly disease and making sure your kids are immunised. But the other side of it is um, that people who were vaccinated between the years of 1919 was it 1990 got the double dose but people who were vaccinated from 1966 would only get a single dose so it is worth checking if you're going to any of the endemic areas where measles is much more prevalent and coming back and having contact um, to consider going to see your GP and and maybe getting a booster shot. Has has measles changed like you know saying that it it can be fatal has it always been possibly fatal or has has it changed? No measles has always been um, you know, potentially fatal. Um, I think the thing is we, we had such a robust vaccination program that we were able to ensure enough herd immunity that we weren't seeing those cases anymore. And I think there has been 
um, I guess a kind of a bit of a lack of, of memory maybe and you know people like myself who grew up being vaccinated and never saw measles and so it was never something that I even as a student was you know paid that much attention to but if you look at the rates of these new cases there's a small outbreak in Perth at the moment with 12 reported cases and that outbreak came from one person passing through the airport and that's how contagious this disease is. So what are we saying if people are thinking of going to New Zealand, uh, if they think of taking kids through New Zealand, what's the recommendation at the moment? That's a really good question. So um, when we talk about these vaccinations, there is, of course, the Victorian vaccination um, schedule. And in this schedule, um, babies at 12 months and 18 months get vaccinated with the MMR vaccine, which is the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. Um, what some experts are considering, and this would be a discussion between you and, and your family doctor, um, but as generic advice, if you're going to areas with really, really high rates of measles, and so areas like the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam or Indonesia, with young kids who haven't been vaccinated, there is a potential to get the vaccine earlier, so at six months. But that's something that, if you, that's if you're going to those endemic areas with really, really young kids, and that's more in discussion with your family doctor. In terms of things like New Zealand, I actually don't know. I think that would also be an individual discussion. It's a very good point, and I'm long enough in the tooth I wasn't vaccinated. Because no, my, my, I had it. We just yeah. had it. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone had it at school. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we just assumed measles was that rite of passage, and of course most of us survived absolutely fine, but measles remains a killer uh, lots and lots of complications doesn't happen that often with um, well-nourished people, but even so, it's a dangerous disease. Uh, it's well worth knowing about that and um, reminding people either to avoid going to those areas if they're not immune or getting vaccinated before they go. Kind of minimised, hey, by A.A. A. Milne. Christopher Robin had measles and sneezles that bundled mm. him into his bed. I can't remember the rest. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. We'll, we'll have to get you to do the rest of that another time. <laughs> Um, Thank you very much, Missy. That's fascinating stuff. We'll be back with you right after we have this. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Dr Nick in the studio with Prudence Deer, Misdiagnosis and Rainbow. Um, having just come back from hopefully sunny climes in the north of Scotland somewhere or other. Well, north of Scotland isn't generally very... Sunny. I mean, it might be sunny, but if it's sunny, it's also likely to be wet. <laughs> and was it? And, and it's a place that I've kind of avoided because if there's time off, my inclination is to head to the sun, you know, mm. to follow the warm weather. But um, I was in Scotland for the International Conference of the International Society of Emotion Focused Therapy. That's why I was there in Glasgow. And while I was there, I thought, you know, I'll have a little break. So I took myself off hiking. And I had a fabulous time. I joined a hiking group so I didn't have to think too much about where I went or how I was going to do it. And off I went. And I had a fabulous time. I came back thinking, wow, what is, why, why was that so good? And I arrived. I, after that, I went to London, visited some people, and they all said how relaxed I was. And you know, I'd had this holiday before I bumped into family members in, in London and and they remarked that, you know, it was much better for me to have a holiday before I visited them, you know. <laughs> so I thought, well, what did that what did that hiking holiday do for me? So when you asked, you know, what are you going to talk about? I thought, I'm going to talk about hiking, hiking therapy. Consulted Dr. Google, looked around, found, I thought, you know, is this called 
is this green therapy? Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what it was. I didn't find anything under hiking therapy, really. But then I found ecotherapy, horticultural therapy, time stress management, which is part of ecotherapy, animal-assisted therapy, which is part of ecotherapy, equine therapy, which is the same, nature therapy, and then wilderness excursion and adventure therapy. (laughs) And I thought, that's what I did. That's what I did. It's part of ecotherapy. Um, And I found that, you know, the research in this has grown exponentially over the last 20 years, the interest in it, Um, although, you know, Green therapy or ecotherapy has been around for as long as we have. Is, is this really therapy? Are we just talking about go and have a nice time and you feel better no matter what it is? Ah, I'll come to that in a moment. I mean, um. that's, that's what I thought I was doing, mm. yeah. Uh, in fact, I was administering my own therapeutic um, solution, I suppose, or what seemed to be useful to me or what I needed at that time. But, um, you know, the, the greening of psychology... Sometimes it's described eco-psychology as the greening of psychology or eco-therapy is more um, described as a two-way relationship. So we look after our natural environment and the natural re- environment looks after us. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a give and take here. And um, there's this concept that um, uh, Jung was a proponent of this, that the... Uh, amongst others, that um, the idea that um, there needs to be a healing of the split between us as humans and nature, that by creating cities, you know, we have split ourselves off from the natural environment, and I suppose from our own, if you want, natural nature. Um, So getting back to that is in itself therapeutic. It's getting back to our 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 true selves. So, I, you know, I, I discovered lots of wilderness or adventure programs specifically, and, and I knew of some of these working out of Melbourne, specifically for um, taking groups of adolescents who are considered at risk out into the wilderness. And the therapeutic benefits of that have been well documented and researched um, for instance, you know, you're taking people away from the external stressors or the the people around them that might be blamed, for instance. So young people, you know, are left with themselves. They only have themselves to come to solutions or to become aware of their own behaviour and the consequences of that, the way they relate to people, to each other as a group, but also to the person that's leading this group, who, if you want, takes the parental role in this. So after exams, I've pretty much always taken myself on a hike or a walk, sometimes for a couple of days and sometimes just, you know, a single day trip. And my experience of it is also a sense of a reduction of what I call choice fatigue, that when I'm in the city, it's, am I going to have my Bonsoi single origin chai matcha latte with double shot and in a half cup? Or am I going to take the tram up this way, see this friend go here, buy this at this shop? And, you know, there are so many choices that we're making in city lives every day. But the choices that you make when you're in nature seem to be, if anything, a more primitive neurological choice. Do I follow the stream? Do I go up the ridge? Do I sit and have lunch? Is this a safe place to sleep? And I've always wondered if taking it back to those more primitive choices in some ways is a little bit of mental respite, that our brains aren't working on overdrive with these you know, city decisions that in some ways are artificial to the environment that we've created. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's, it's, choices are about survival. 
choices are how, how do I get from here to there? And then also, how do I get from here to there? How do I make myself do that so that I don't lose my security, which is my group? So, yeah? Rainbow, can I ask the question, as a, as a medical practitioner, when I'm advising people what they should do to help themselves because psychologically they need something, who should I be recommending mm. wilderness therapy to? Well, the, in, it, the research that I've done is that there are quite a few programs, I don't know how easy they are to access, for younger people, yeah? I would suggest that it's that it's useful for anybody. I mean, it was useful for me doing this in a, if you want a tourist ex- exploratory, you know, let's go on adventure kind of thing rather than seeing it necessarily as therapy. And and there's a whole business, you know, it's, it's the industry around outdoor um, activities and adventure activities. It's enormous now, and there's all the merchandise that goes with but it. That, you know? But that's where I get a bit cynical because I, I worry that we're taking something which is just going for a hike and having a nice time, suddenly converting it into some sort of psychological doodaddy and tacking on the merchandise and making a business out of something that is maybe, in a scientific sense, spurious. But I will leave that hanging well, in prudence. Yeah, but there are people. Well, I mean, there are people though. There are therapists who are sort of you know developing um, these sorts of programs. So it. Absolutely, you know, can be quite a, a formal kind of professional sort of approach, and it's not necessarily about the commercialization of making something green and, and selling it in a different package. I mean, the people that would benefit this often aren't in a position to be able to pay the bucks to join some, you know, uh, adventure uh, tour, if you want, um, and and uh, get their, all their own equipment that they need to keep warm sometimes to keep the bugs at bay you know all that sort of stuff i mean that's the thing if this is beneficial for us it would be great to to see more programs and access to those programs for groups of people that would really benefit in Absolutely. terms of their mental and health I think they can be very simple so it's not you don't have to go for a four-day hike you know in, a, in the middle of new zealand or something you can go you know just you know in the yarra valley or something with somebody for an hour and a half to walk through the forest and just have somebody guiding you and perhaps talking to you about some of the principles of you know relaxation calm how do you appreciate the environment you're in and and switch yourself off from the city a little bit switch yourself and in that context as well you're not i mean it's quite confronting to sit with a therapist you know right in front of them and have them sitting there looking at you. You go walking with someone side by side, you can have the conversation. It's like taking an adolescent for a drive in the car. That's exactly the analogy I was thinking, that some of the best conversations with younger people happen over the washing up or the driving the car when distracted by some other activity. So it's not just sitting face to face, face, only doing the emotional stuff. Yeah, and these programs, you know, have group therapy as part of it and of course you have to show up don't you because you don't know the way out you can't so this is this is where i struggle a bit when i think of the disturbed adolescents that i see that many of them struggle to get to a single gp appointment the only thing they're really good at is getting into the city to hook up with their mates and exchange various substances how do we get this um, made available to the people who need it Mm, it's a good question i mean there are there's a there's a a private practice called neuro neo psychology which i think is based in hawthorne that i've known for a long time a guy ooh can't remember his name but anyhow has been doing this for a long time but it's a private practice i don't know what access there is to that um schools do it you know often 
year nine is the year that a lot of schools will go on camp. I mean, this is the same thing, that people in a, in a place, they can't get, you know, you have to get them there. And I imagine some of the best benefits are going to be where we combine not just the wilderness or the outdoors, whatever the green environment is, exactly with what you were saying, Prudence, when there is a trained counsellor as part of that process. So I can see the benefits of getting out into nature and just enjoying that, which was your experience in Scotland. But the thing that seems to me potentially much more therapeutic is to take what you're saying, misdiagnosis, that remove all those other distractions and then plug in someone who can facilitate that conversation one of my um while i was the 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 the, um hike that i went on was led by a guy called james shelton who was an english guy who was an ex-marine now a medical student at the age of 35 he'd managed to get himself into medical training and wanted to be a psychiatrist we had some very interesting conversations about this walk and talk and exercise and nature and you know the whole combination of it and my you know my next step is to have a conversation with there's an association the uh, Australian Association of Bush Adventure Therapy that was established in 2008 and is in Templestowe here so I'm going to go and have a chat to them. I'm kind of liking that I think maybe I'm going for a career change here because I like the idea of combining bush Therapy, maybe taking a dog as well. So, I mean, <laughs> combine some of my favourite things, get some animals out there into the fresh air, and and doing yeah. some psychological good. Sounds yeah. terrific. There are training courses. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say this because I won't be able to get on one if I'm <laughs> <laughs> be competing for a place with you. Triple R. Um, coming back to radiotherapy and matters medical prudence, mm. you're thinking breasts. Well, yeah. Now, I mean, I, uh, there was a story that came out in the in the news um, just in the last week um, that I think falls into one of those categories of you know potential sort of medical horror stories um, <clears throat> from a, a patient or consumer's perspective, and that relates to someone in a regional centre who um, explained. And this actually, the event occurred about a year ago, but they went they went to their GP. They had a lump in their breast and the GP sent them off to have some imaging done I think they had an ultrasound they were you know required to have and also a mammogram and um, what what apparently happened was they went along and they someone did some ultrasounding or whatever um, but then told uh, this person that they couldn't have a mammogram they wouldn't give them a mammogram because they were quote too young to have cancer unquote and that they should um, do a watch and wait and see what it was like in six months time and come back so um, fortunately, um, this person had um, you know, enough wherewithal to think this wasn't right and actually went back to their GP, who then actually referred them to a breast specialist, who then, um, yes, ordered, uh, I think, a biopsy and, um, and a mammogram. And they returned to the same um, imaging org- organisation, who then actually still refused to do the mammogram. And so what age <coughs> was this woman? 33. 33. 33. Mm. So, um, I, look, I mean, exactly what was going on, what obviously ha- what did happen was that this person actually stood their ground and absolutely insisted that, you know, they got a GP re- you know, request for, for this investigation, that they got a surgeon, uh, a specialist surgeon with a request for this, and who were they to, to question whether this should be done or not, insisted that it was done. Uh, and the results of the investigations at that point then actually showed that she had an advanced breast cancer. 
That is an mm. appalling story. The thing that the thing that uh, I struggle with as a practitioner is there's a huge difference between what we call screening Absolutely. and the investigation of a symptom. This woman yes. had lump. symptoms. That's right. This was um, not asymptomatic. Yeah. It wasn't. You know, and I, I can understand some of the what might have been going on, but there was some serious misinformation here, either on the part of the provider or whomever. I'm not sure what what was going on, but I mean, clearly, um, it's not cl- clear to me. You know how how a service provider for you know imaging services actually overrides a doctor um, that's a bit of a worry I mean beyond possibly that some reason or other it doesn't qualify under the appropriate funding rules or something but well, they, they should be, be making about, medical decisions that would be they? a question about advising about costs not yeah. about whether it's some misdiagnosis as a medical student if a 33 year old woman was in an exam question with a lump in her breast what would be the appropriate course of action well, I'd probably start with history and examination. Yeah, doctor. but in terms of it, <laughs> very good. Okay, <laughs> you're not in exam mode now. Um, what would be the next the next step? Um, you know, I think it would depend on on the size of the lump, on how long the lump had been there. Um, on the location of the lump, on other symptoms that she had as well. Um, I just want you to say you'd do a mammogram. Right. I mean, sure. But, you know, you, I guess I guess the thing is that if you're, you know, as the general public listening, a lump in the breast doesn't just mean mammogram. And I think that that's sometimes with this information, maybe that's what the radiology centre is thinking. A lump in the breast doesn't equal you have a mammogram. A suspicious lump in the breast does equal a mammogram. But those are two different things. Correct. And I mean, look, I can see where some complications. I mean, obviously, mammograms are one of many techniques for investigating. I mean, in terms of imaging techniques for investigating, you know, abnormalities, right, in in someone's tissue. Um, And an important thing, I suppose, is to note as well is that you know, like all kind of pathology investigations, they're not perfect. They're not one hundred percent. There are always issues. Like you know, they you can you can go for a mammogram and you can get a negative result. There's nothing wrong with you, but actually, there is. So you get false negatives and you get false positives and false positives can be an issue because very often they lead to further investigations or surgeries which all carry kind of risks as well and they may be for no reason. Um, I think also there's probably just in terms of public perception, you know, we have a screening program in this state and this country uh, run under breast screen which is a population screening screening technique to detect cancers in Part, those members of the population who are going to be more at risk because of age. So that that screening program operates for people from 45 years of age up to 74 is the main group, but they do also take people from 40 years of age then. Um, I think they don't do it earlier because one is that the chances are of finding cancers are significantly less and also the very nature again of mammography and the differences in younger breast tissue are such that it's very difficult to interpret the the images that you see. So it's not an accurate screening method for young people. It's a very, very important point that when we're talking about screening as opposed to investigating a symptom which was particular Screening is for asymptomatic (coughs) people, right? There's no as we don't know to think there's anything wrong with you. Come every two years and we'll check you in case something we, we pick something up early. But the point you're making that the younger breast, um, the mammography is a yeah. much less sensitive way of looking Correct. at the younger breast because the tissues are more dense yep. and so it's harder to get good pictures. There's less chance of having a cancer in the first place. And then we have to remember that uh, mammography is radiation. Yes, you don't and so you're irradiating, and you, you yeah. don't want to irradiate tissues yeah. more often than you have That's to. Right. Remember, misdiagnosis. You said a suspicious lump. Can can you kind of 
what do you mean by suspicious as opposed to non-suspicious? Well, I, I guess what I mean by that is that um, everyone's breasts vary in density and, it, you know, for, for example, some people have breasts with more fibrous tissue um, or more, you know, more fat in them and you may feel essentially what is just glandular tissue and if you don't know that that is just glandular tissue you can feel it as, in inverted commas, a lump. And so sometimes there are young women who come in and I think sometimes that's where these conversations get murky is that there's medically a lump in the breast and then there's socially a lump in the breast. And I think, you know, which is why I, I didn't answer the question as mammography straightforwardly because, you know, if if a young woman comes in and she has felt something that she is concerned is a lump but actually it's just normal tissue, um, you know, that, that can just be a teaching her how to do her own breast screening and reassuring her that that is normal fibrous breast tissue as opposed to you know what we'd consider a sort of a hard sort of solid lump in the breast in one of the particular quadrants that is not consistent with normal breast tissue and it's it's really difficult because you know I personally have breasts so I know what my own feel like but you know, I've done a bit of breast screening on other women and people's breasts all feel quite different. And until you get more expertise in feeling lots of other people's breasts to know what is a, you know, in inverted commas, a, a suspicious lump versus normal breast tissue, um, it can be quite difficult. So I guess I don't want within this conversation to, you know, scare young women who might have normal glandular tissue. But that's where the expertise of a medical professional comes in that you can examine that breast and say okay well this isn't this isn't normal tissue which you know we call it normal tissue but might actually feel a little bit lumpy because it's fibrous yeah and, uh, well that that's that's really important to point out i guess though what we're looking at in this particular circumstance it appears to be that a, a doctor had actually requested a particular type yeah, of investigation and that, yeah. that wasn't performed yeah i mean yeah look, i mean I, I can also see you know that there's that there's different types of investigation that you do or you, you know you use mammograms in different circumstances we use them for as we've said for that the population screening which applies to mainly a particular sort of age group um, there is the, the, the further investigation of some suspicious um, issues and then there is the surveillance of high-risk populations, perhaps people with you know, BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations which put them at particularly high risk of breast cancer. It's worth you know, checking them regularly regardless of their age. And then, of course, we have people who've had cancer, who've had breast cancer, who then have follow-up, you know, scans to to make sure that there's no further sort of progression or there's no, you know, spread of the disease. And they, those are all different reasons for using mammography. And again, from a from like a perhaps a public perception, a public perception is that you know the the breast screen program, for example, only covers the po- the fundamental population screening of asymptomatic women. Um, I think one of the things that struck me as well, though, was that you know, that, okay, this is an example that in, there are still many instances where we, as patients and consumers, you know, need to know how, what our rights are at times and need to know when to stand our ground or when to go back to our practitioners and say, I'm not happy with what's happened. I actually think there's something wrong with me. I'm not convinced that this is completely benign and I want, you know, I want a second opinion, I want a referral to a specialist. And as it happened, I mean, that, that worked out here, but it didn't have a great outcome for this particular patient. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing here, of course, is that not everyone is able to advocate for themselves. Mm. And you're talking about, you know, talking to the doctor 
you know, yeah. the doctor up there yeah. on the pedestal. Indeed. There's a power differential. Yeah. Yeah. That, but it's a very important point that uh, um, you do require a lot of health literacy to advocate yeah. to that extent. Um, I think I'll check with you if this is correct misdiagnosis, but we're understanding more that when in, in medicine that when someone says this isn't right, something more needs to be done, uh, that people actually generally are right about that. Uh, we certainly know it's true, there's been research on this in paediatrics, that when a parent says there's something wrong with my child, you're a foolish doctor if you don't listen to them because the research says that parents know. So we certainly know that about parents and kids, and I think there's probably evidence. Well, most of us know, either, yes, for our kids or for ourselves, what is kind, what is normal, what is the everyday experience, and we are acutely tuned in to, to shifts in those. And when when a change occurs in the, 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 your sense of, of well-being that, that persists, and it's really important to seek appropriate advice. And there, there's actually some legislation in, in Queensland around this in terms of paediatrics mm-hmm. where... If a parent has brought their child in and has been turned back, and, and I don't I don't know the specifics of this legislation, but um, if they've been turned back, I think it's more than twice. They can request a review by an uh, independent, separate paediatrician, and they have to do this, and they have to have someone else come and review this child if they feel, for whatever reason, that the person that's been, you know, reviewing them maybe has anchored on a diagnosis that you know they they don't feel is appropriate. Speaking as a as a consumer, you know, one of um, and as a parent, one of my children had some health issues when they were little and had a lot of investigation. And I cannot tell you how um, fantastic it was when the medical practitioner that we were seeing would turn to me and say, what do you think as as their parent? Mm. Yeah, and that's a huge difference than being in this machine where you kind of have no one's really listening, you know, to the parent that knows knows the child the small child better than anyone else and knows what mm. what is usual and what is unusual for them what yeah. scares me is that it sounds as though that question was unusual it was unusual <laughs> yeah. yeah well that makes my heart sink empowering isn't it um, to have a practitioner who actually consults with you rather than just tells you yeah. what they think yeah mm. So just re- for people listening, just remind us in terms of screening, what is the current recommendation for women? Not uh, talking about symptoms, not talking about lumps, yeah, healthy right. breasts, Symptom- what should women breasts, do? Um, age from 45 onwards, mammogram every two years. And of course, you know, a, a program of informed self-examination and a, an awareness of your own body and the way your own body changes, you know, either on a monthly cycle or anything else, really. And can I add to that, despite having been taught how to do breast exams um, at university, I actually went to my GP and said, can you check mine and teach me how to do it? And I'm not worried about anything, but I don't think I'm checking my own as well as I am on these whatever plastic models we're supposed to be using. So you can you know, ask for someone to help you teach yeah. how to learn how to do it. Yeah, I think that it's very important. There's a lot of research on breast self-examination and the benefits or otherwise, but there's something very important, I think, for people to get to know their own bodies and be comfortable with doing that exercise exploration so that they have better information. Um, thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Triple R. Misdiagnosis, fresh from the exam hall, had you thinking about exams, exam stress and that sort of thing. Um, a few thoughts about that. Yes, I, I think I you know, had a dream last night that I was halfway through one of my short answer questions before I woke up and realised, oh, that's actually done now. So essentially, I, I sort of wanted to talk a little bit today um, about exams, exam preparation, exam stress, and it also being Mental Health Week uh, this week as well, because 
I've been completing um, exams in this time of the year for uh, over a decade now um, of various different types <laughs> of exams from VCE through to various university exams and then, of course, the final medical exams. And, of course, VCE is coming up at the end of this month, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So the first VCE examinations, I think, are on the 31st of October. So I thought this might be a, a fitting time, you know, because it's not quite crunch time. It's not that, you know, it's a few days before the exam and what are you going to do and it's, you know, make or break. But it, it is that time where preparation should be well underway for, for most students and, and gearing up towards uh, these exams. And so there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, mostly about keeping sane during exam time, um, and then a little bit about particular um, techniques and things, and also stuff that I thought might be helpful for um, anybody looking after kids at the moment who are going through, and you know, I say kids, but you know, teenagers, adults, adolescents, what, who are in this period at the moment, and maybe you know, wondering how they can actually help. And having been on the other side of that, um, I feel like I have a, a you know, an idea of, of what was helpful for me. So, well, sanity sounds good. Let's start with sanity. Let, how do let's keep start that? with sanity. So. <laughs> I think when it comes to sanity, I, I wrote down a, a couple of dot points for this, that things that got me through the last decade of this period. Um, and the first the first point that I have was habits, that um, having exam habits that work for you. And I say work for you because everybody will read, and you know I have some particular strategies that I use, but that doesn't work for everybody. Um, people study at different times um, and they, you know, some people are, prefer studying in the evening and some people prefer studying in the morning. So it, it's about building a habit that you know works for you and sticking to those study habits and whether that's, you know, the Pomodoro method of doing a 25 minute on, five minute off consistently or my personal method was I would wake up, make a cup of tea and go straight to my desk. I wouldn't have breakfast first because I would get distracted by the newspaper or the new leaf on my plant outside. I could find anything in the morning to be distracted by. But if I went straight to my desk, I would get an hour and a half of study done before breakfast and I'd be itching to get back to it because I'd already started that ball rolling. Now, that's not something most people would choose to do, is it? They wouldn't get out of bed and go straight to the study. But you're saying that was an effective technique for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a it's a bit of a controversial one because people like talking about having a really healthy breakfast and morning r- rituals and some people do yoga or meditation and and that's that's great if that's your routine. For me, I found just starting was not only the hardest thing to do but also once it was done it was the easiest thing to do mm. because then I could just continue. There is that uh, principle isn't there of uh, you know you need to eat the frog. You you must find the, the worst thing you've got to do today and you do that one first. Whatever it is. The French people listening to this would not understand what you're talking about. And that's a perfect thing to do, eat the exactly. frog. Well, you know, it's not, not something that anybody would actually like to do. So no. think of the worst thing you've got to do today. Not Get that garlic. one off. Once you tick that one off, it's all downhill. I'm, I'm with, with you on this, this method, actually. Um, I used to do it when I was writing my doctoral thesis and procrastinating. You know, um, I found myself one day sweeping the the weatherboards on my house. You know, rather than <laughs> such an important writing task. anything down. But the solution for me was to go straight to the desk. Nothing, n- no breakfast, no cup of tea, nothing. Straight to the desk in my pajamas, so nothing else could get in my head. And I would sometimes still be sitting there in my pajamas. You know, at the other end of the day, because I couldn't, I couldn't risk 
letting anything else in. Yeah, you know? and I mean that's you know when I say habits, that was something that um, I found worked for me. It may not work for other people. Um, if you still haven't found your habits yet, you can try a couple of different things and see what does work. But I found that extremely effective. Otherwise, I ended up with just a very, very well-organised sock drawer and very little homework actually completed. Can I, can I give you my study tip? Yeah. It's a very, very long time since I had to take an exam. But the hardest thing I found was knowing how to relax and not study because you could always do more. So I found I had to set myself limits of how many hours study I was going to do. And then when I achieved those limits, I could stop and enjoy the time I wasn't studying. Because without some sort of program, which I wrote for myself, I found myself always thinking, I shouldn't be watching this TV show. I shouldn't be reading this book. I should be studying. So I found allowing the time of not studying was as as important as the time to study. That's kind of the other end of the spectrum of study, isn't it? It's either doing too much or doing too little. Mm. And and I see some of the young people I work with, the things that they actually need most under the stress of exams and and study, which are some exercise and good food and, you know, nutritious food, they go out the window. Mm. And I, I, when I was... Oh, it must have been about five or six years ago. I was speaking to a friend of mine before I was sitting some particularly nasty exams. And I said to her, I just don't know how to switch off. I don't know how to relax. And she had just sat the bar and she turned to me and she said, don't you realize that everything you do from now on is preparation? The sleep that you're having is preparation. The food you're eating is preparation. The exercise that you're doing is preparation. And, of course, the study's preparation too. But she pointed out to me that all of those other factors were actually also part of your, in some ways, your learning and your preparation. And when she said that, I found it personally much easier to go, okay, well, I need to do X number of hours of study and I need X number of hours of sleep and at least X number of hours of exercise and at least X colours on my plate at dinner time. And I found that it gave me permission to do the other the other things, which are all those kind of the scaffold that allow you to actually work effectively. And for some reason that seemed to click with me, this idea that all of it's preparation, because I think I had been under this impression that the things that I was doing at a desk, writing down notes and you know in a book and doing practice exams, that was the only thing that was preparation and everything else was getting in the way of my preparation. I really like that. I, th- I think that's a, a lovely concept that it's a, because we do tend to think it's only our time with our head buried in a book mm. that's the valuable time. But, of course, you're absolutely right. All that other stuff is the scaffold. That's a, that's a great metaphor for it, I think. Mm. And I think it's important as well perhaps to bear in mind just how perhaps your, your brain actually functions. And you, you can sit there with your, you know, your, your articles and your textbooks and everything else trying to cram. And some people can. I know people with, who have got the true photographic memory and they can read a textbook and then they can walk into an exam. But for most of us, we need to process it as well. So I think you actually need to walk away from the study sometimes, go and do something else. And that's actually when you start just thinking about stuff in the background and start connecting the dots and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So what about a couple of things? So I always used to study listening to music, which a lot mm. of people say is a distraction and you shouldn't do. Uh, mm. What's the view about that? Oh, I mean, I don't know what the research on this is. I've never been able to listen to music with lyrics, but I would often put on background noise. So whether that was white noise or I've you know found a whole lot of sort of classical instrumental stuff that I just put on in the background. And I found that really helped me because a bit less lonely and it was a bit sort of you know something nice going on in the background um but I think that's a really individual thing some people do you know some people can screen out lyrics really well I found that the lyrics themselves 
interfered with my study. And what habits. about and what about the time of day? Because there's a lot of talk about mm. when you should study. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, when I study, I work by a very very basic principle of hours before midday and hours before midnight. Mm-hmm. And in terms of hours before midday, I find that's when the the amount of hours of study I can do before midday during the daytime. I find that really helpful if I can maximise those hours, even making that three or four hours. I can normally duplicate that in the afternoon and that's a really good day of study done. And the hours before midnight is how many hours of sleep can I get before midnight? Um, Uh And that was my basic principle of exam preparation. But I think people do work differently and I don't think, you know, I I can say what I did and what, what worked for me, but I don't think it's appropriate to give a sort of blanket rule on 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 how this stuff works because you know i mean even my first or second year of university i was writing literature essays at three o'clock in the morning we you know we all do that we all try that we've all been there with that and for some people that works i found actually in the long term that didn't really work for me so uh, just thinking of the parents who might have vce kids coming up any hot tips that you've gleaned after your 10 years of exams (laughs) Um, yeah, so I actually did a little bit of research on this as well. Um, you know, having been a VCE kid and having, you know, been in these sort of stressful periods, I, I think one of the really important things, and, and please weigh in if, if anybody has any other opinions on this, is is to make the first move with your kids and actually start the conversation with them about exam preparation or stress. And, you know, not the moment they walk in the door from school or, you know, just before they go to bed at night time, but maybe over the washing up or, you know, over walking the dog or something and, you know, ask them, hey, how's it going and how are you feeling at the moment and is there anything that I can do to help right now? I, I think that's the first step is is making the first move. And then the other side of it is not being dictatorial but recognising, especially if these are, are VCE children, that they, you know, they are young adults and they want to be involved in making these decisions together. So working together and problem solving together and what would, you know, asking them what would help you and what is it that we can build in that would be beneficial and what is it that you know you specifically need help with? I think those would be my, my two tips, that approach first and do it gently in a problem-solving way. So I, was just, I was just going to comment as a parent who's got a, um, a third-year undergraduate at home right now. Oh, you know, the kitchen's never been cleaner. The fridge has all been completely reorganised. The cupboards have all been cleared out. It's fantastic. Let you go for it. Have your weatherboards been cleaned. Yeah, or just treat oh, no, as free labour, either way. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for that. That's a, that just makes me think I'm so glad I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, it just takes me out the horror of exams. Um, we're getting near to... Excuse me. We're getting near to 11 o'clock. It's nearly time to wrap up, and it's just time to say thank you to our wonderful panellists. We've had Rainbow, we've had Prudence Stew, we've had Misdiagnosis, and we've a huge thank you to Panel Vita for keeping this whole show on the road. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand and you can always download the podcast so you can listen to us again and again and again. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.